I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So, like nine times out of ten, when I'm talking to someone who is just learning how to cook, they always want to ask something like, oh, what spices should I really get? And it's kind of funny because, you know, in my own cooking, I kind of have to say it, but I don't often use spices unless I'm following a recipe. Like, it's just not my instinct. So I'm always curious about why beginning cooks want to ask about spices. And I think it's because spices have become synonymous with the idea of flavor, right? And that's probably a holdover from, I don't know, like the medieval era, when a heavy use of spices demonstrated your wealth and power. And that idea has held for literally centuries. And yet despite all that, a huge portion of the spices bought and sold in our country come in the form of almost flavorless, dusty little jars of pale powder somewhere in the back of the cabinet. They probably weren't that great to begin with when you brought them home from the store, and then they've just been left to fade away in a drawer. Well, today we want to root around a better spice cabinet. We're doing a tasting of some anything-but-basic basic spices with Ethan Frisch, co-founder of the direct-trade spice company Burlap & Barrel. And first, we're talking with Sana Javeri Kadri, founder of Diaspora Co., a new spice company based on a new way of thinking about how spices can be traded more ethically, more culturally appropriately, and more deliciously. Hi, Sana. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. So it, it, it's actually so funny because... I was first introduced to your work many years ago when you were a photographer. I think I was at work at my cookbook job and we were looking at your photos and being like, oh, we should like reach out to her and have her shoot a cookbook. She's amazing. And then someone was like, uh, I think she's actually running a spice company now. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did that transition happen? I think, you know, being a photographer for me, was a means to an end. I loved mm. telling stories. And, and the initial assignment for myself was to photograph it, was to research that, okay, the spice trade existed for a very long time and it was run by the colonizers and it was very harmful. And now supposedly in, you know, I think it was 2016 at the time, something has changed. Let me go see and photograph what the spice trade looks like today. Mm. And okay. it was really that photo project that led me to be like, wait, actually, beyond just taking photos of these farms and, you know, checking out these spice harvests, I might want to go figure out how to start a company around the spices mm. um, and then use my photo skills to actually market those spices. <laughs> so it's it started everything, was the taking photos. It's like, well, if the marketing is free, I might as well start the company. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and by free, I mean, I'm going to do that myself Blood, anyway. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so tell us well, originally what you learned. How are spices typically grown and traded? Like, what does that industry look like? Yeah, and you know, I grew up in Mumbai, and they teach you about colonialism, but it's very broad strokes. It's like, oh, that was bad, but they also gave us trains. Um, <laughs> there isn't like a detailed understanding of like, what what did the colonizers do? And mm -hmm. what, does, what did the spice trade look like that made them so rich? And so what I learned essentially is that, you know, we had across Asia, um, we had the Dutch, the Portuguese, the French, um, and finally the British who all came to Indonesia, to India, to China looking for flavor. Pepper was, was one of the first things they found. And they quickly realized that they could build a trade that was highly profitable by essentially selling, like, let's take black pepper and turmeric as examples. They could take turmeric from, you know, South India and then sell it in Venice for a huge markup, like hundreds of X marked up because the customer in Venice had no idea where this came from. Sure. So there was a lot of myth-making around the turmeric of like, oh, we like fought from, you know, we fought against like venomous snakes and like stole it from the nest of these snakes to get you this turmeric and therefore it costs so much. And <laughs> Is this for real? Like happened. these are actually stories that we're told? That's that's for real. That's Those are like yeah. really documented stories about where spices came from according to British and Italian texts. It's wild. <laughs> and uh, they also created a system where there were many, many middlemen. Sometimes there were up to 10 to 12 middlemen. So a farmer was harvesting something and then reselling it 
to the local trader, to the regional trader, to the exporter, to the importer. And then eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, a a customer in England was picking up some really stale, really outdated turmeric that they were like, oh, I guess it makes stuff yellow. And what I learned was that, you know, not only were they not paying the farmer very much at all because they thought of these farmers as lesser beings and it was very extractive of how much money can we make from this, but also it was not focused on flavor or taste. It was just, here's this cool thing that you don't know about and we don't know about, but you should buy it. Mm. Um, So quality standards were never developed, really. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, and I think what I learned, you know, 150 years later was actually the system hadn't changed. So 2016, 2017, like little old me is running around South India trying to understand the spice trade and realizing that, you know, the British left in 1947 but Gujarati traders or just traders, basically Indian traders just inserted themselves into the system and kept it going business as usual. So it's not like the mm-hmm. colonizers left and suddenly the system became delicious and equitable and wonderful. It stayed pretty rotten. Yeah. And so that sort of supply chain that you just described, the farmer is at one end, you know, selling their product for a pittance and then just boop, 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 each, you know, yep. each um, step along the way takes a little chunk of it. And then you have these expensive spices at the end, completely divorced from the farm. Many, many, many weeks or months, you know, uh, later, sure. maybe years, I would suspect in some cases. Like, so you're what you're five saying is five to 10, five to 10 years. Yep. That's, and to this day, like your spices can be five to 10 years old before they make it to your shelf. Just they've just been chilling in like warehouse after warehouse. Yeah, each middleman is waiting for the price being right to sell it because there's no incentive to sell it while it's fresh. And I think that was the crazy thing I discovered 5 years ago or 6 years ago of like oh, we need to like prioritize freshness and nobody's done that before. That's wild. Wow. <laughs> okay, so that system still exists. Yes. Um, tell us more about like what are you know look famously, coffee, cacao, which is used to make chocolate. You know these things that are part of our daily lives that we really, in some cases, really can't live without. They typically fall into a, a similar pattern, right? These are sure. products that are grown in specific parts of the world you know, what some people call the global South or what some people call like, you know, less developed countries or or whatever. Yeah. But, and they're enjoyed throughout the world and particularly in, you know, wealthy countries. And, you know, when you find out what the farmers are actually paid, it's pretty bad news. Um, It sounds like spices fall into that pattern as well. Are there, talk to me about the sort of what you see as like the sort of ethical practices of the industry. I have so much to say about this, which I think you know. Um, So yes, I think we were very inspired by coffee and chocolate to a degree. Like I think Mm -hmm. I I looked at the bean to bar chocolate movement that was taking cacao and really elevating it and talking about the origins where it came from um, and making it this like thoughtfully sourced product um, or specialty coffee where we're very connected to oh, there's this Ethiopian farm that's giving me these beautiful beans. And, you know, that that has happened. And that's largely because of roasters and companies here in America. Um, but I think when it came to spices, what I was chafing at a little bit was it's always um, the West that gets to determine how an ingredient is used or how it's marketed or what stories we tell around it. So, Mm. you know, when you think of black pepper, you usually think of French food. When you think of chocolate, you think of Belgium and Switzerland. When you think of turmeric, you think of Gwyneth Paltrow's turmeric lattes or Erewhon (laughs) in LA. (laughs) And I think for me, there was this real feeling of, sure, you know, you can buy turmeric and do whatever you want with it. You want to make a beautiful turmeric pasta, you should do that. And that's great. But maybe you should also know about like our Andhra Pragati Turmeric farm partner and his family's insane chicken curry recipe that Mm. uses turmeric as like the base and the foundation. Or maybe you should know that our cardamom farmers like make the most incredible dessert that's like rice noodle based with the cardamom. Um, And cardamom is so precious to them um, that they'll use as little as they can and stretch it out as much as possible. Um, So how do we 
do the cultural work of obviously paying our farm partners equitably, that's the bare minimum, but I think the cultural work of actually making sure that um, their cuisines and what they do with these spices becomes as famous and as popular as, you know, a steak au pauvre or whatever, however you say that word of a peppery steak. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, that that to me is is the exciting part, I guess, of what we're trying to change. Yeah. And so when you started the company, turmeric was your first product. Yeah. It's a spice company, but like that's like you hadn't moved to this, you know, you have this like large array you have now. Why did you launch a company with like basically one product and why was it turmeric? <laughs> yeah. So I was fascinated by the rise of turmeric in America in 2016 and 2017 mm-hmm. via like wellness trends and via Gwyneth Paltrow, to be quite frank. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and the curiosity for me is who is supplying the turmeric for this trend, you know? Um, okay, who yeah. are those people? And so I went on this big deep dive and visited all these turmeric farms, um, photographing the harvest and meeting all these families. And through that research, I met Mr. Prabhu Kasarnini, um, my now dear friend, but also the farmer who grows our Pragati turmeric. And he was just, I mean, he was a revelation. You know, he was this young guy. I think he was 30 when I met him and I was 23. And he had taught himself regenerative farming, which is like far beyond organic and really looks at soil health um, using WhatsApp, like not even using YouTube. Like he was just like joining WhatsApp groups and like asking people (laughs) questions until he learned how to farm completely differently. Um, When I met him, one of the first things he said was, if you don't care about how I take care of my soil, I don't need to sell to you. And I was like, take all my money, take it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it started with him because he was just exemplary Mm. and he needed a high-end market that really told his story. And I felt like, okay, one, turmeric is this beautiful color. And two, this man is amazing. Let's start with that. And it's all I had money to buy, quite frankly. I had $7,000 to my name. um, And I gave it all to him to buy 350 kilograms of turmeric um, that I had no idea where I would store because I lived in a vegan, like, queer co-op in downtown (laughs) Oakland. It wasn't ideal. (laughs) (laughs) And I I stored it all in the co-op basement until I eventually got thrown out because they got sick of me and the turmeric. Oh, no. Um, So I think I started with turmeric, one, because I felt like I wanted to do it right. I hadn't seen a photo story anywhere about what a turmeric harvest looked like. So I wanted to mm-hmm. like really luxuriously tell that story. And also the fact that, you know, yes, for in America, turmeric might be associated with the latte, but in India, it marks life and death and weddings and like every meal I grew up eating. And I wanted to share all of those recipes with people. So when we launched, we had, you know, a turmeric drink, a turmeric face mask, two vegetable recipes and a rice dish. And I spent a very long time photographing each one. Mm. So it was a depth that we started with. And now we have these 30 spices, but it took us months, if not years, to source all of them. Like we spent four years looking for the most delicious fennel on the market. And actually our coriander farmer, who's this like industrious Gujarati man, who's kind of a cowboy type figure, um, (laughs) he learned that we were hunting for good fennel. Uh And he finally said like, I'll I'll find you the fennel that you want. So we sent him every example of fennel available on the American market and like ranked it for him of how we like it and what it tastes mm. like. Oh, cool. And then he went on this like epic journey looking for like indigenous Indian fennel seeds that could like be as sweet and strong as we wanted. That was in 2019. Then he spent two years like developing the seed and like building up his his harvest. And we launched it in 2022. Oh, that's um, super three cool. years later. So yeah, I, th- I think it, it, we launched one product because I think we knew that that turmeric was the best. And then we sort of slowly grew from there. That's Sana Javeri Kadri, founder of Diaspora Co. And we'll be back with more with her in a minute. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. 
Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking to Sana Javeri Kadri, founder of Diaspora Co., about a revolutionary way to deal spices. Let's get back to it with her. If even a second, just to get back to the turmeric. Yeah. Because turmeric is, you know, as you said, like has been such a trendy wellness ingredient, and now mainstreamed in that way. You get like a turmeric latte at like you know chain coffee shops and whatever. But turmeric, you know, has this deep cultural connection to many cultures, but also like from a culinary standpoint, it's such an interesting flavor because I, I actually literally once remember a chef saying, oh, turmeric doesn't taste like anything. It just makes things yellow. That's like when you get curry oh, powder in the store. Blasphemy. It's just the thing that makes it yellow. And then I've tasted turmeric where it didn't taste much more than that, but it was just bitter. It was like, oh, it's just bitter and yellow and maybe medicinal. But then I've had the opportunity to taste turmerics that are, they, it's almost like smoky gunpowder and other ones that have this incredible um, sort of gingery heat or this like aromatic. What do you look for in an excellent turmeric in terms of the flavor? Yeah. So, you know, the tragedy of colonialism is that it like, collapsed information mm. and like lost people access to seed varieties. So in India, we know, and I think across South Asia, even parts other parts of Asia, that there are hundreds of varieties of turmeric out there. You know, mm. there is a mango turmeric that my mom makes a pickle out of, um, and it's really healthy for you. So she eats a little bit of the turmeric pickle every day. Like the actual Ma- root, like pickles yeah. the turmeric root. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. And it's, it, it's essentially a mango turmeric that um, it's not mango-y, but it, it has a different flavor profile. So that's what it's called. Um, okay. There is turmeric that is much more aromatic and almost has like sandalwood-like aroma. And so that's used more in like spiritual practices as um, like what you put on your face or your body when you're doing a ceremony. And then there's medicinal turmeric that has a very high curcumin content. But a lot of that knowledge was lost and collapsed, especially here in the West where the information just never made it over. Sure. So I think when I'm looking for beautiful turmeric, uh, first I'm looking for specificity, right? I'm looking for what variety is this? Where is it indigenous to? Um, What is the curcumin content? What is the tasting notes? Does it taste like marigolds and sunshine or does it taste like lemongrass and ginger? Um, And and there's very distinct varieties that do both. Um, For us with our pragati turmeric, I think of it as your sort of all-purpose cooking turmeric because it's bright, it's zesty. And again, you know, you said this thing of like chef saying that turmeric doesn't have flavor and I feel like we're on like a single-minded war to change that opinion. Yeah, yeah. First, first you'd be like, it, "Boy, believe me, there's flavor." <laughs> yeah. Yes, and you and you're gonna have to pay for it. You know, like if you're <laughs> buying the eight-year-old stuff, it, yeah, it's not gonna taste like much. Um, so I think the first thing that I'm looking for is distinct origin and tasting notes, and then the next thing is how is it grown and how does it retain its volatile oil content, which is a bit nerdy. Mm. Um, And I know those are big words, but what's important to know in spices is like fat is flavor. So the higher the volatile oil in a spice, um, the more when you sizzle it in an oil or you dry roast it and then you bite into it, the more the flavors are going to hit your tongue. Mm. So high oil content, more better. So when I'm picking cloves, for example, you know a good clove by when you, if you leave the cloves on a paper towel out on your kitchen counter and you then take the cloves away after a few hours, you'll actually see oil stains on that paper towel. That's how you know a good clove. And similarly with turmeric, I'm looking for a really oil-rich turmeric. Um, Obviously, cloves just naturally have more oil than turmeric does. Um, But 
more oil, more better. So I'm looking for varieties with a high oil content. Um, and in Prabhu's case, he has a very stable variety. So like this year, it has a 5% curcumin content, which is the anti-inflammatory good stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's always pretty delicious. It, it's always intercropped with marigolds um, and yams and uh, oranges. So it always has this like bright, zesty flavor. Um, That's so and yeah, that, that makes it ideal for us. Whereas there are certain varieties that are amazing one harvest, like... I, I tasted this turmeric that like had a raspberry white chocolate note to it and it like blew Whoa. my mind. Um, yeah, it was like fruity in a way that you would never expect like an earthy base spice like turmeric to be. Um, but then the next year it was completely flat and dry. So oh, it just wow. wasn't okay. a very stable variety, you know? Um, so yeah, that, those are the kind of sort of dorky things that we have to think about before we give something to a consumer. No, but that, that's so super interesting. And it, and it makes so much sense that like, oh, when you are dealing with specific farmers for their specific products and that's your whole model you have to deal with what they deal with which is hey weather and the earth is weird and you know there's natural variation and this season is better than the other and obviously you know you have a smaller supply chain you're not you know working with these massive efficiencies well, economic efficiencies, which means culinary inefficiencies and sort of <laughs> cultural inefficiencies. But you said you you pay, I think on your website, you said you pay six times the commodity price to farmers? On average, it's four to six X, yeah. Okay, so like, what is the impact of that on their lives and in their communities that you've seen? Yeah, I think the impact has probably been like, on one hand, the most satisfying part, but also a very tricky part because sometimes when you talk about impact, I think it's easy to feel like you're their savior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not actually true, right? Like I think, yes, we're paying four to six X on average, but we're also sort of righting a wrong. Mm. So the first year that we work with a farmer, usually they buy a smartphone. That's like, they got a little bit of cash, they buy a smartphone, they now have WhatsApp mm-hmm. um, and can like take nicer photos for us. Second year anecdotally, they will usually start sending their kids to a better school. Um, That's like the first thing that we see is like, oh, I don't have to send them to like the village school anymore. Um, Let's send them to a boarding school nearby or maybe an English medium school. And that's, you know, education in India is very expensive. So it's it's a big commitment, Mm -hmm. but it's a commitment being like, okay, I know what my stuff is worth now. Mm -hmm. And then year three, they're willing to have a conversation about, oh, how do we pay our workers better? Um, and, and that's big because often farm workers obviously are the weakest link in any supply chain who are paid the worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think what's important to mention is that from day one, our impetus is if we are working with you, you will not be in debt. And we will make sure that we are paying you advances um, and paying you in, in sort of the cash cycle that you as the farmer need so that you are not going into debt. Because debt for agriculture in India is some of the most predatory, like, high interest rate, terrifying debt that Mm. farmers then get stuck in for generations. And, you know, literally the next generation inherits their parents' debt. And so my work as the business owner who's essentially fronting a lot of cash to these farmers is how do I figure out my cash cycle? How do I get loans, investors, whatever, so that I can take on the cash burden for my farm partners? Um, And and that's been like, a financial aspect of my job that as a photographer and art major, like <laughs> I did not expect to know this much about cash flow, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. Well, thank you, Sana. Thank you for explaining all this to us. Super interesting. And thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on here. Sana Javeri Kadri is the founder of the spice company Diaspora Co., you can find a delicious recipe for almond turmeric potatoes to put your new turmeric to use. It's on our website, splendidtable.org. So here in New York City, where I live, there are a few spice shops that are kind of known as like chef hangouts. If you're in town, Calustian's is the classic, SOS Chefs is small and beloved, and La Boite is home to the most amazing, creative, house-made spice blends. But for me, I'd never before tasted anything like the spices from Burlap and Barrel. It's a new direct-trade spice company. They have spices I've never heard of before, which is cool, but 
Even more impressive to me was the fact that the spices I've known my whole life, in some cases, tasted so different, so much more 3D than anything I'd ever tasted before. Co-founder Ethan Frisch is here to talk about what makes spices great and to take us on a little tasting. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Francis. Thanks for having me on. You know, when I first met you, it was at this event and we were seated next to each other and I was like, who is this guy who cannot stop talking about spices? And then I realized, oh, this was actually your work. (laughs) But, you know, through that conversation, I was like, yeah, you know, I have really not given spices as much thought uh, as I probably should have. So was there an experience in your life that really like made you change the way that you think about spices? Yeah, I'm definitely the guy who can't stop talking about spices. Um, I started Barlap and Barrel with my co-founder, Ori, in uh, 2016, the end of 2016. And basically all I do since then is talk about spices, think about spices, taste spices. Um, But uh, the the business came from my uh, background in restaurant kitchens. I was a line cook and a pastry chef in New York City. And then from my work in international development, I I left kitchens and, and went to grad school and became an aid worker. So I lived in Afghanistan and other places around the world, uh, tasted spices that were totally different from anything I had ever come across at home and realized Mm. that there was an opportunity, an opportunity to connect farmers who were growing really interesting products with customers who would pay the value for for something that was really much better than what was already available, Uh, and an opportunity in the U.S. Even even the best best restaurants, professional cooks, either didn't know where their spices were coming from or or couldn't get the good spices that they wanted. And we've just kind of brought those two ideas together over the course of several years. Oh, right on. But then was there a moment where you're like, man, I got to dive really deep into this. I'm going to start a business. You just told me like sort of the impetus of the business, but like when were you like, this is how we get started. This is what we do here. Yeah. uh, After graduate school, I moved to Afghanistan um, where I lived for two and a half years. I lived in Kabul and spent a lot of time traveling through really remote rural areas of the northeast of the country. I was working on a big infrastructure project. So I was visiting school construction sites and bridges and roads and uh, other things in in a rural area of Afghanistan that I didn't know it at the time, but uh, is famous, at least domestically, at least locally, for its wild cumin. Uh, it grows in the mountains. Uh, it's a different species of cumin than most people in the U.S. have encountered before. It's these tiny little black seeds. And I, I first tasted it there, you know, at, at little roadside restaurants. We, we would stop at for lunch on a, a long drive up through the mountains or uh, at a little market in the capital city of that province of Badakhshan province called Faizabad. Uh, my first time there, somebody was selling a little bit of cumin at, at the market in town. And um, you know, I had worked in very good restaurants in New York City, including Tabla, a f- famous Indian restaurant. I, th- I thought I knew my way around a spice cabinet. Yeah. And then to taste something so different um, and especially so connected to a place like, you know, rural mountains, northeastern Afghanistan was a, an experience. I, you know, it, it led very directly to starting this company, to working with producers in 25 other countries around the world, building out a model around around that idea. Wow. So Tabla famously was Floyd Cardo's restaurant, and Floyd has since passed away, sadly. But we had Barca on the show a little while ago to talk about the spice blends that she makes with you guys. And But yeah, that is a restaurant that was so centered on Floyd's mastery of spices. And we were talking earlier, and you said he didn't have a great source for getting these very specific spices or, or spices he was using were you know, through like the Indian market. And not necessarily like direct trade, but when you get to the actual spices themselves, you know, I've I've tasted your products and I use them at home. I love them, but they do taste so different. In some cases, it's like the spice you know, but better. But in some of these cases, like really, like wow, I, I thought I knew what this was, and I'm tasting this thing. It's got the same name. But it's not that at all. So let's get into the tasting of some of these products. But first, I want to ask you, how do you actually? taste spices like you know in coffee there's this whole method of tasting called cupping it's almost like ritualistic and obviously in wine there's a whole like swirl look sniff thing is there like a spice master's protocol for tasting spices or do you just kind of get in there just get in there just taste them (laughs) uh taste them on your finger taste them on a spoon taste them right out of the jar that's always our standard when we're deciding whether a spice is up to our standards or not you should just know you open the jar and the spice tells you how good it is Mm. the aroma the flavor the way that it it expresses when you're cooking with it even just sprinkling a little bit over scrambled eggs or or mixing something into a salad dressing really simple applications can really demonstrate that quality difference that flavor difference uh very quickly so 
that that's it. Just just taste them. Okay. So right now we have the cumin, your cinnamon, uh, black and white pepper. Uh, where should we start? Yeah, let's start with the cumin. Okay. Um, and then we'll go sweet, and then we'll go a little spicy and savory. Our black pepper and white pepper are, are pretty special in their own right. Um, not just black and white pepper, but the cumin. So if you open the jar, what do you get? Oh, my God. Okay, so cumin. I remember the first person who ever described cumin in words to me. Like, it was way back before I was a cook or anything. But someone's like, oh, yeah, cumin is like instant Mexican food. Just put it in something and it makes it taste Mexican, which is obviously very reductive to both cumin and mexican food but i know what they were talking about right it, it's like when you get like taco spice mixes blends it's mostly chili powder and the most of the aroma comes from cumin so i do get yeah I th- you know some of that yeah, i think spices are always ev- evocative of of the cuisines that you've experienced them in places sure. that people have traveled that you know that like aromatic experience is so connected to memory and emotion um if you if you peel off the sifter top, there's a sifter top on yeah. top to make it easier to to shake from. But if you pop that off, you'll get a little more of an aroma as well. I do get a little, you know. Obviously, I get that classic cumin aroma, but there's a really bright, almost citrusy kind of element to it. But also on the other end, almost like leather, like a like a deep. Oh God, it's like cumin plus like nine other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. This is a different species uh, than the cumin most people have tasted before. So the seeds are much darker and smaller. You don't even need to grind them. They just dissolve right into whatever you're cooking. And I completely agree with you. They have that sort of mountain herb aroma, a freshness, a sort of a pine or, mm-hmm. or mint uh, character yeah, totally, that, totally, that's totally. really different from most cumin. Oh, and this, cool. this is hand-picked wild in the mountains. Truly, this is a, a crazy supply chain. Uh, we're now coordinating the shipment of the 2023 harvest, which was picked in the last few weeks out of Afghanistan and trying to get it to JFK by air freight from Badakhshan down to Kabul. But this is a supply chain that we've built over many years with very close partners. You know, having lived in Afghanistan for a long time myself, I have a, a, a real uh, affection and, and attachment to the country. And so even when the Taliban took over a couple of years ago, it was really important that we maintain the supply chain, continue to buy from the producers that we work with, um, you know, this uh, across the board, what we try to do is, uh, is, is put money into the pockets of smaller farmers or foragers, people who are growing or, or harvesting traditional ingredients in traditional ways. Um, otherwise they have very limited access to, to markets or, or customers. So, sure. uh, you know, we have made this commitment to the supply chain and, and to the producers at the other end of it. And, and I'm really proud that we've maintained it. So what you're tasting now was harvested last summer and in a very short period of time, we'll have the, this summer's harvest in stock on our website. Okay, great. I'm going to go for a pinch of this. Yeah, let's do it. This is probably, I don't know. Actually, you've picked several of my favorites, but the cumin is probably my single favorite from our whole lineup. First of all, oh, wow. So the seeds are tiny, um, really quite tiny, and they're almost crispy. I definitely feel a a really, it's not even a crunch, it's a crisp. They're so fragile and delicate. And that like pine resin, sort of like dry arid. Um, I think of like dry arid shrubs. Uh, that really comes through. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing that to be able to taste the place, right? You know, people ask us what single origin means or what it means when it comes to spices. You mentioned coffee and tea. You know, the, the phrase has existed in in other other products for a while. But um, to be able to taste a little bit of the landscape of the climate. Uh, the soil, the you know, the the view that you might experience standing on top of a mountain <laughs> in Afghanistan or looking up a, a river valley, that that arid, piney um, texture and, and flavor is really it really reflects the place. Wow. Coming up, more with Ethan Frisch, co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, and we dig into the amazing world of cinnamon. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. 
They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka's Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking to Ethan Frisch, co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, and tasting some really special spices. Let's get back to it with him. Should we move on? Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. So cinnamon, this is our royal cinnamon. Um, what people may not realize is that cinnamon is tree bark. There are four commercially cultivated species uh, from around the world. Um, there's a little bit of a misnomer around true cinnamon versus other varieties of cinnamon. All cinnamon is cinnamon, yeah, what's whether the story it's with that? cassia cinnamon or cinnamon verum. You know, honestly, it's it's a holdover from a colonial understanding of uh, Latin botanical names. Some botanist, a European botanist, decided that the variety of cinnamon that grows in Sri Lanka should be called Cinnamomum verum, uh, should be the true cinnamon. Verum meaning true in Latin, yeah. True, verum meaning true in Latin, right. While the other cinnamons grown in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in India, elsewhere, shouldn't be true cinnamon. But they're all the genus Cinnamomum and then different species. And, and like other, like many other crops, uh, different species taste a little bit different. And so Cinnamomum verum, the, the Sri Lankan variety, has a little more savory profile, a little more herbal. And then this royal cinnamon, the reason that we picked this to add to our lineup, first of all, it's very rare. Uh, it's Cinnamomum luroroi, a species from Vietnam. Uh, not the typical Vietnamese cinnamon. Most of what's currently grown in Vietnam is cassia cinnamon, a, another species entirely. But this species uh, is very distinctive for its sweetness and its spiciness. Um, that's one variable when it comes to cinnamon. And then another variable is the age of the tree. You know, the older the tree mm. is, the thicker the bark, the more concentrated the oils. And, and when you eat cinnamon powder, uh, that flavor really comes through. So this cinnamon is from 20 plus year old trees. Uh, the, the trunks of the trees are so big, you can't get your arms around them. Um, they're, they're really <laughs> incredible. And, and the bark itself is very thick. Uh, I have a, just to show you on, on our video, uh, this is a, this is a, a cinnamon oh stick from Vietnam. You just, you, you you just picked up like a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah, I had it in a box under my desk. Uh, it's a it's a big cinnamon stick. Yeah, it's almost maybe two and a half feet long, um, and you really see the cur- you know that's the tree bark as it's uh, peeled oh, yeah, off the yeah, tree yeah, off the it, trunk. It just of the curved tree. in itself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and you know when you buy a cinnamon in stick form, what you're buying is cinnamon from a much younger branch, something that's thin enough to be able to curl nicely into that uh, stick shape yeah, little tiny cinnamon. Um, okay. and cinnamon powder is often a stronger flavor because you can you can grind up older bark denser bark with with more concentrated oil oh that makes so much sense cool okay well let's taste uh, the should, royal cinnamon do you want to taste it yeah a little, little sniff so, and a little little pinch uh, i live in the age of the internet i know the cinnamon challenge is a whole thing so i'm not going to try that or like you try to eat like a whole tablespoon of cinnamon at once and then watch <laughs> then watch yeah, people's faces explode just a, a little <laughs> A little on your fingertip or something, um, but you can get a, a good sniff too. Oh my god! You know, I have used this at home, but I've never tasted it straight. I can't believe how sweet it is. Yeah, like if, if you just hand this to me, I would think someone. Oh, it's just like a cinnamon sugar. Like you mixed sugar into it already. You're not alone. You know, maple trees have sweetness uh, in in the bark in the in the sap. Cinnamon trees similarly have a lot of natural sweetness in the bark. And and like I said, it, it just concentrates over time. So the spiciness and the sweetness in this species in particular. Um, this comes from an area called Quang Nam, way up in the mountains in central Vietnam. Uh, I was just there last summer. Um, farmers will, will grow kind of subsistence crops or cash crops and then grow their cinnamon forests essentially over decades. Uh, they're passed down from 
generation to generation. Uh, on a previous trip to Vietnam, we met a cinnamon farmer who had just gifted a plot of land, a plot of cinnamon trees to her daughter as a wedding present. Because when a tree takes 20 years to harvest, to get to that really high quality yeah. <laughs> of harvest... <laughs> it's for the next generation. It takes a long time, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's a lot of pride and a lot of uh, cultural attachment to this this product in particular, this variety of cinnamon. Mm-hmm. It, it's a spectacular cinnamon and very rarely exported from Vietnam. We also carry the, the cinnamon verum, uh, which we get from a co-op in Zanzibar, the same folks who grow the Zanzibar black pepper. Um, and that's a very different flavor profile, more savory, more herbal, more citrusy, uh, more, more subtle maybe. This is, this is really uh, sweet and spicy right up front. It doesn't yeah. mess around the royal cinnamon. Um, should we move on to black pepper? Let's do black it. Black pepper and white pepper, we can kind of do them together. Okay. Um, unlike cinnamon, four different species grown in different countries, pepper is all the same species. Uh, so the, the differences that you taste between peppers from different places might be, uh, might be more subtle. Uh, but pepper grows a lot like wine grapes. Uh, it grows in little bunches on a climbing vine. Um, here, we can open these jars. Let's start with the black pepper. Okay. Well, well, let me, um, let me, let me ask pepper. a very, very yeah. dumb, dumb question first. Pepper, like peppercorns, black pepper, white pepper, actually have nothing to do with chili peppers, right? Blame, blame Christopher Columbus. He <laughs> uh, insisted that he had made it to Asia, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, yeah. <laughs> and went so far as to, to name the chili pepper, the ajis that he found in, you know, Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, to name them pepper to try to confuse everybody else. Pepper was a, a, a name that was a, that had originally applied to black pepper. Um, and because the chili peppers that he found had a, a spicy flavor reminiscent of black pepper, uh, that's what he insisted on calling them when, when he got back to Europe. And we oh, still struggle so with this confusion, I pepper had, and pepper. I had no idea. That is hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, totally different plant, totally different growing conditions. Uh, just Christopher Columbus confusing us for hundreds of years. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for that. So black pepper, white pepper, I love them both. They are actually the same botanically. Peppercorns, black and white peppercorns, both come from the same plant. And the okay. difference is the process after it's harvested. So each each individual peppercorn is a fruit, is a single berry um, and that wrinkly black outer skin of the peppercorn is the dried fruit, you know, that that wrinkles and, and dries up sort of like a raisin. Uh, the white peppercorn is just the inner pit. Uh, the fruit has been removed, and there are various ways to do that. And we'll talk a little bit about it for the fermented white pepper in particular, because it's a really interesting process. But um, but a black peppercorn is the whole fruit, and a white peppercorn is the pit with the fruit removed. Ah, okay. And that's why white peppercorns tend to be a little bit smaller, because it's literally like the black part has been removed. Yeah, exactly. Smaller, smoother in texture. You don't get that mm-hmm. the sort of, you know, the like the planet. Yeah. yeah, the little wrinkly planet uh, bumps that you get on a black peppercorn. You can open the jar to take that uh, grinder top off. Oh, my God. It smells incredible. Un- unscrew the whole thing. And then we can just pop a, pop a peppercorn. Uh, the, the black pepper uh, comes from an organic agroforestry cooperative in Zanzibar, Tanzania. It's an archipelago in the Indian Ocean. Um, the peppercorns grow wild in the jungle uh, on this island called Pemba. The roads are uh, kind of on ridges through the jungle. So you're sort of at the level of the, the treetops. And then you go down into these gullies, um, you know, overgrown, green, lush, beautiful. And then there's a pepper vine climbing up a, a tree or, um, you know, they're all intercropped. So they'll be climbing up clove trees and cinnamon trees in this forest. Um, peppercorns start off as, as green, and as they ripen on the vine, they go from yellow, then orange, and then ultimately red. Uh, the best peppercorns are picked, you know, sort of later in that ripening process. You get more sweetness, more complexity, more sugar in the fruit itself, mm-hmm. in, that, in that outer fruit. Um, a commodity peppercorns, black pepper, is almost always picked very underripe while it's still green because that's what's easier to harvest. It's, it's more resilient, but you lose a lot of flavor. You know, it's the difference between a a green peach and a, and a ripe, beautiful, uh, oh, peach. Yeah, totally. so, okay. so there's big differences. These, these are picked sort of two thirds of the way through the ripening process. We also have a shipment coming in of purple peppercorns, the fully vine ripened peppercorns from another farm that we work with in Vietnam. They're very difficult to do. The birds eat them. They, they, uh, they start to <laughs> rot very quickly. So they're, oh, yeah, they're sure. challenging for farmers to harvest, but, uh, really special. If you can taste a, a fully vine ripened peppercorn, it, it's a really different experience. All right. Well, let me let me get in on this Zanzibar black pepper. Let me. I'll just warn you; these are are very hot. Uh, the heat <laughs> will will build. You're not going to believe me at first, and then uh, and then it'll hit you. 
um, they also have a really distinctively citrus aroma, a real a real lemon flavor. Uh, so just kind of keep an eye out for that. As yeah, right on. Tasting. As I'm smelling it too, I keep thinking like, God, it smells like cumin and cinnamon. I, I think that's just <laughs> my hands. But <laughs> all, all the other all the other jars you have open in front of you. Yeah, dear listener, you can't trust anything I say now. There's that crunch. Yeah, a little bit of, of sweetness or fruitiness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And then the heat starts to build. Yeah, the heat is really it really kicks in. But there is a like a menthol kind of quality to it. Now I'm salivating uh, severely. Yeah. <laughs> But there is a real brightness. Yeah. Unlike that, like cinnamon, for instance, and that cumin that tasted really different than the versions that I know. This, there is a familiarity I have with this black pepper, but like it tastes like black pepper I know, but like dialed up to ten. Like this is really not just the heat, but really like the floralness, that like citric sort of aroma. And again, that little bit of like menthol. But that was maybe because I was like chewing on the whole peppercorn. If I ground it you know to top my pasta or whatever maybe that doesn't come through as much but this uh co-op in zanzibar was probably the first other than the cumin the first uh supplier group or producer group we started working with because this pepper was so distinctive this was one of the spices that convinced me early you know early in this experiment that actually single origin did matter when it came to spices that even something as, as ubiquitous or familiar as black pepper can still be presented in such a different way mm-hmm. uh, because of where it comes from, because of how it's grown and, and the people involved in that. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we've sort of built the company around this black pepper because it, it's it's just so good. That's pretty awesome. Let's let's uh, go over to the white pepper. So white pepper, I've always enjoyed, like growing up in a Chinese home, like we used both peppers, but white pepper we use a lot more in our cooking than black pepper. If we use black pepper, it was usually for a particular dish, for a particular flavor. Like it would be a black pepper beef or something like that. And white pepper, we would, that's the one we had on the table to like sprinkle on stuff like congee or soups. Like we would often sprinkle a little bit of white pepper. So that flavor is familiar to me. I didn't really realize until I was cooking in restaurant kitchens that white pepper is much less common and much less familiar to people. Um, Except in France, they really love white pepper because you don't see the black, apparently. That was my friendship. Oh, we have to use white pepper so you don't see it. I'm like, that's the important thing here? Yeah, 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 you nailed it. I mean, there there are roughly two traditions of white pepper around the world. One is the Southeast and East Asian tradition, Mm -hmm. where the white pepper is is about that kind of funky fermented flavor, which which this uh, white pepper is a great example of. And then there's the European tradition, the French tradition, which was, uh, to be honest, based in a, a colonial uh, and racist understanding of what spices were, not wanting little black flecks in your white cream sauce. And so they created a different version of white pepper. Um, oh. I mean, it's so on the nose, uh, you know, wanting wanting their sauce to be white and the pepper to be white, even when it, it wasn't. Um, but that's where it came from. And so most uh, kind of European style white pepper doesn't have the depth of flavor, the complexity, the intensity of the traditional Asian white pepper uh, style, which which this is a great example of. Um, So what they do here for this fermented white pepper, this is from an island called Bangka in Indonesia. It's an island that's famous for its white pepper and where they have the longest fermentation process I've ever come across. Um, Peppercorns are picked fresh off the vine in in little bunches like grapes and then fermented. So you're making faces as you, as you sniff it. It's it's funky. Yeah. So the, the peppercorns are picked fresh and then tied up in woven sacks and soaked in a little stream or, or a, a pond of some kind uh, for two weeks. Um, they get staked down so they don't float away, and you can actually see the bubbles rising up. What's happening is the, the fruit, the outer sort of the black skin of the black peppercorn, is fermenting underwater um, and rotting away and leaving you with this really funky uh, white pepper that, that has those fermented flavors left over from the process. And uh, yes, the peppers come up out of the water after two weeks. They get cleaned and and scraped against a a mesh sieve and then dried in the sun. But uh, you can kind of categorize it in the same category as fermented black beans or miso or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, other other fermented ingredients, fish sauce, uh, where that fermentation process plus the base ingredient itself create a a really special flavor. Yeah, I'm I'm really struggling for ways to describe it because it just hits you like nine different ways at once. It's really beautiful. I mean, it's, I don't think of it as like, oh, it's an intense fermented aroma that you need to like have as a, 
as a taste you've acquired over time or through culture. It's just like, it's a gorgeous aroma, but it is very, very complex. It's sort of fruity. It's sort of banana-y a little bit. Yeah. I, I add this, I cook with this, almost everything I cook has this white pepper in it, that, that uh, barnyard quality that you're smelling mm-hmm. um, uh, really softens in, in the flavor. Mm-hmm. And when you cook with it, it diminishes into just a, a little bit of a background flavor. It, it's not as intense as it is when you're sniffing directly from the jar. And it really layers beautifully with, with other ingredients, garlic and ginger. Yeah, um, I can it, totally see it that. It creates uh, just such a complex flavor. Do you want to take a little, take a little bite? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop one in my mouth now. Wow. There's like a sweet fennel note to it. There is a, I mean, definitely also some heat for sure. It's almost herbal. It's so interesting. Like people obviously conflate spices and herbs, but they're botanically super different. <laughs> um, but there is almost like an, an herbal sort of green leafy quality to it. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you look at the side of the jar, we always write uh, funny tasting notes and we try to have some fun with them. So one of the tasting notes on this is celery. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, sure. That kind of that leafy green herbal quality you're talking about, and then goat cheese and funky fermentation. Yeah, I can totally get that celery for sure. Yeah, it's this pepper's from a little family farm, a father and son operation on Bangka. Um, kind of an interesting story. I had been planning a trip to Indonesia and was, I, you know, I've always loved white pepper and was looking for a particularly funky one. And a couple of weeks before the trip, I got an email out of a blue. Dear Ethan, my name is Pak Sugiri. I'm a pepper farmer on the island of Banka. I would like to sell you my pepper. He found our website somehow. He found my email address and sent me an email. And I emailed him back, uh, buddy, you are not going to believe this, but I'm going to be there in two weeks. I'm already planning a trip. I'm coming to your island. And I met with probably 10, maybe a dozen pepper producers on the island. And luckily, uh, his product was far and away the best. And he seemed like the best person to work with. He was obviously sort of entrepreneurial and trying to make this work. He had inherited the, the farm from his parents and was struggling to find a place for it in the pepper market. And uh, and we've been working together ever since. We, we buy almost everything he grows. That's super cool. Right on. Well, I am a fan and a customer. And thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Ethan Frisch is the co-founder of Burlap & Barrel. And if you're feeling cinnamony now, you can find a delicious recipe for cinnamon toast graham crackers from Genevieve Co.'s beautiful book, Better Baking. That's at SplendidTable.org. And that is our show for this week. Go get yourself some great new spices. You're going to love them. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lim Rosano Castor. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your downloads, and take some time to leave us a review. We really want to hear what you think. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. APM Studios.